So does God know the end from the beginning? And if so, why would that God create souls that are going to burn in hell forever? My guest today is Thomas J. Ord. He's a theologian, a doctor, has a doctorate program he offers in something called Open and Relational Theology. And that is a theology that believes God does not know the outcome of the end of the world today and that we're walking it through with the God of heaven to figure it out. You're going to want to hear about this. Open and relational theology is our topic today with Thomas J. Ord as our guest. And let me encourage you as we go to this podcast, check out my website at pastor-paul.com and subscribe. That's how we keep this work and all this free content on the air. And also you can see all my coaching offerings from Deconstruction U about your theology and reconstruction you about your emotional well-being, please go check it out at pastor-paul.com. Now our discussion with Thomas J. Ord on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everyone, post-evangelical podcast. I'm uh, the unconventional Pastor Paul. Glad to be with a new friend of mine today, Thomas J. Ord, or Tom, as uh, he wants me to call a a theologian, philosopher, scholar, author of uh, a couple of great books. The newest one is right here. See if I can... I don't know if that's about... Yeah, Open and Relational Theology uh, is uh, the book we're going to talk a lot about today. Speaker and uh, has a doctoral program around this theology, so a lot of stuff to talk about for all of us who are kind of figuring out what does Christianity, spirituality look like in this new space. So, Tom, glad you're glad you're with us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Paul. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, we just met and had a great chat the other day, and we thought maybe we should record this thing and put it out there <laughs> so people can hear it. So, it's good. So talk about, uh, you know, as I was going through the book, and I haven't totally completed it yet, but I've read about halfway through, and it it seems that uh, there's a, a theme of theology maybe is wrapped a lot around how we see evil and and maybe in Christian space of like, how does a good God allow bad things to happen? Is that is that sort of a baseline of, of theology, you think? You know, I think, I mean, polls say that, the majority of atheists li- list this question of suffering and evil as the number one reason why they just can't believe in God. And so it's a pretty big deal. Um, and I think if you were to hang out with most people who do believe in God, it's probably the number one question they have as well. You know, if God really exists and loves me, then why does God not stop? the genuine evil in my life and in the world. So yeah, it's a pretty central issue in the open and relational conversation. And it seems most of the answers we get to that are God's ways are higher than ours. Or the one that I really struggle with is like, if I get a good parking space at the mall, I have to thank God for that. But if a child gets cancer, that's man's fault. It doesn't seem to make sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The traditional answers to evil don't make sense to me either. Usually what happens is after people kind of run through the list of possibilities, you know, God is punishing someone. It's somehow good in God's perspective and we don't understand it. Or God's trying to teach you a lesson or whatever the, the, the question is or the answer is. Then people get 
sort of frustrated and reach into their back pocket and pull out a big old honking mystery card. Yeah. And just say, you know, God's ways are higher than mine. And that's kind of where the conversation usually ends. That explains it all, right? And <laughs> and it's it's I mean, it's cruel, right? I mean, it's it's in some ways it's cruel to say to a family who's lost a a child, you know, well, you know, God had a purpose for this. There's going to be a good purpose. It, or, or the idea of somebody survives a bus crash because God has a purpose and everybody else died for God. It's, it's a little bit of a cruel theology. Yeah, I think so, too. At least it feels that way to most victims when someone yeah. tries to, often in good with good motives, someone tries to reassure them that they should be hopeful that in some way this is a part of God's plan or God's purpose. Um, I'm, <laughs> I don't feel hopeful or comforted by that, those kinds of answers, but uh, some people think they, that others ought to be. So how does open and relational theology deal with the question of, of evil and, and bad things happening to good people? Well, I think there's a number of options on the table, but I think I'll share my own perspective and just acknowledge there's some diversity within open and relational thought. My own answer begins with the uh, audacious claim that God simply can't single-handedly prevent evil. Not that God could, but is allowing it or permitting it. But God simply doesn't have the kind of power to prevent the genuine evils in our lives and in the world. And the reason, I am arguing, is that God's nature is love, and this love is inherently uncontrolling. God loves everyone and everything, and since God's love is uncontrolling, God simply can't control anyone or anything. So does that eliminate the the omniscience, omnipresence of God? or Omnipotence, or, you mean? Um, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I would want to say we shouldn't think God is omnipotent, at least in the way the word is usually described or defined. I mean, you can define words in just about any way you want. But the way the word omnipotence is usually defined means that God either is the cause of everything that happens, God is the all-determining one, or at least God has the kind of power that God could cause or do whatever God wants to do. Maybe God temporarily gives agency and freedom to people, but every once in a while, if God really wants to get the job done, God steps in and intervenes and single-handedly bangs out a result God wants. Um, I'm denying both those views of omnipotence. It. I mean, it has to be that way. And I, I, I know my Christian friends struggle with this, but if God is omnipotent and that in omniscient and omnipresent, all powerful, knows everything, is everywhere at once, then either he is causing everything to happen or has at least made a choice to not prevent something from happening. So in, in, in that case of a belief, it has to be the, the idea that men are making all the choices, and so men are to blame, humans are to blame for all evil, there still has to be the case that God ha could intervene in, say, something really horrible like child assault and yeah. chooses to not. 
Right, right. I happen to be coming to you from my house in Idaho. And behind uh, my backyard, there's a pretty good sized creek. I have three daughters who, when they were younger, used to play in that creek. Suppose some summer day, I'm in the backyard and my girls are out in the water splashing around. And my oldest daughter takes the head of my youngest daughter and puts it under the water and is drowning her. Mm. Now, suppose I'm close enough, I could intervene, get out in the water and rescue my youngest. But suppose I said, you know, I'm not causing this killing. Don't blame me. I'll just allow it to happen. Now, if I did that and I could have intervened and saved her, no one would think I'm the ideal father. My wife wouldn't come home and say, you know, Tom, you did the right thing, just letting your kids drown each other. But most people think God has the kind of power to prevent whatever evil happens, and yet God allows it. I reject that view of God. Mm -hmm. And it does it for a good purpose. I, it's... That's the alleged reason, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something beyond our knowledge or a mystery. That's that mystery card that I mentioned. Yeah, or to or to get our worship somehow, which then it, it, uh, I heard somebody say somewhere along the way, uh, you know, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign God can do all of those things, would have every right, but cannot be good. That that cannot be a good being. That is the ultimate narcissistic, self-indulgent being, wouldn't it be? I totally agree with that. Yeah. I mean, and think about it like this. Um, if God is allowing all of the evils we see in the world, if you have a choice to choose God or the girl down the street to be babysit your kids, you're better off choosing that girl down the street who just might intervene and try to rescue your kids because the God who exists and who currently could isn't doing a very good job. So I, I think the babysitter criteria is it'd be a good one. Who would you hire for your babysitter? <laughs> <laughs> and this is a, a topic that means a lot to a lot of people. And you have a book called God Can't how to believe in God and love after tragedy, abuse, and other evils. So I'm assuming uh, people can really get uh, a little bit deeper into your thoughts on this with that book. Yeah, that book offers a five-fold solution to the questions of suffering, and the God can't piece is one of those five. So, so is, is God in that view self-limiting or, or self-limited by his love? Or is God something different than uh, a sovereign being on, on a throne somewhere in the cosmos in, in, uh, in the view of your kind of open and relational theology? Yeah. Well, I would say my position it kind of rests between two alternatives. One alternative says God is voluntarily self-limited. God could be totally in charge of any situation if God wanted to, but God usually doesn't step in and take control. Now, I reject that view because of the kind of illustration I gave with my daughters in the drowning scenario. On the other side of my view is the idea that God is limited by some kind of external force or being. Maybe it's the metaphysical laws or the laws of nature or the devil or principalities and powers or whatever. There's something outside of God and God's like, oh man, I'd really like to help out here, but this thing is preventing me. 
My view says it's God's own nature of love, not some sort of external force, not some sort of voluntary decision, but it's God's own nature of love that makes it the case that God simply can't control anyone or anything. And I keep adding that phrase, anything, because I'm extending this control not just to human free will agents, but to chimps, dogs, worms, corks. Top to bottom, I think God is uncontrolling. And and nature. That's right. All throughout nature. Yeah. Mm. So, for yeah. instance, uh, people ask, wouldn't a loving God have stopped the pandemic? In my view, God simply can't do that single-handedly. Now, part of my view is that God calls upon you and I to play a role in overcoming evil. So the kind of work that's being done in uh, you know, research to uh, combat viruses is inspired by God, and we have to cooperate with God. But that's not something God alone does to stop a pandemic. So that sounds like the relational part of your theology. Let, let's let's just talk about this this theological theory. You have a doctoral program in this open and relational theology, and so talk about those words. Like why open and relational? Yeah, well, the two words open and relational stand for two big ideas, under which there's lots of other kinds of ideas that people debate and have different nuances. So let me talk about what the two big ones are. The relational idea is the idea that God is relational in the sense of not only giving, but also receiving. An interactive God who is influencing us, but also being influenced by us and all of creation. Now, people who are most Christians, at least, who go to church and read the Bible, <laughs> they're probably going to say, yeah, that's kind of pretty much the way God's described in most of Scripture. And they'll be surprised to discover that the major leading Christian and Muslim theologians in history have rejected the idea that God is giving and receiving. God is emotionally responsive to creation. They've said God is non-relational, or the technical word is impassable. Mm -hmm. And what relational theology is actually embraces the notion that our lives matter to God, our prayers can make a difference, etc. The, okay. Yeah, and how do how does someone read Moses convincing God to change his mind and not believe <laughs> that's a that's a part of true theology? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, just about any major doctrine requires something like that. Like, take the idea that God forgives. Well, that sounds like God responds to some sin that we or others may have done, or. Even this, the controversial things like God is angry at us, God's wrath, well, that assumes God doesn't like something that God perceived happen in the moment before. And that's a kind of responsiveness uh, to creation. Well, and and he, what he regretted creating man altogether. Right. Right? Yeah, that's what the Noah story tells us. Yeah. So that's so, the engaging God, the giving and receiving. The openness one is a little more controversial to the average person. It says that the future is open. It has not yet been settled. God has not predestined or even predetermined it. And God can't know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future. 
So it's a rejection of what in theological circles we call exhaustive foreknowledge. God mm. doesn't foreknow everything that's going to happen. So, so when the Bible says God knows the, be, the, the, the end from the beginning or all of those things, what, what does that mean then? Yeah, I mean, the scholars have interpreted that a lot of different ways over the centuries, but um, most in the open and relational community would say God has general plans and God ha knows what God wants to do to bring creation to a, a place of love, community, compassion, kingdom of God, whatever the language you like, uh, something better. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that God knows every single detail of what's going to happen as if it was all in one moment. Mm. That definitely would change our, our view of uh, interaction with God, for sure. Definitely. You know, most Christians I know, most Jews and Muslims I know, they pray as if the future is open. They pray mm. like open and relational thinkers because they think that at least in some instances, their request will make a difference to how the future plays out, how God responds, what happens. Um, and if you think that, you must think then that the future is open, not already settled. So most people pray like open and rational theists. And, and that uh, somebody had asked in the the live feed here that as we're recording, you know, why pray? And 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 so how do you see prayer in this uh, in this open and relational uh, kind of interaction between humanity and God? Yeah, prayer takes many different forms, but usually the one people want to ask about is what we'll call petitionary prayer. That is, does my requesting of God to do something make any difference? Now, help, help we, me not run into traffic on yeah, uh, yeah. the 405 <laughs> as I'm headed yeah. to Southern California. Right. <laughs> you know, I've already mentioned that people who think God knows the future and it's already predetermined because it's God's foreordained everything— um, Petitionary prayer really doesn't make any sense in that way of thinking, because right. praying that your grandmother will be healed of cancer when God's already determined whether or not she's going to live or die, I mean, doesn't, it's not going to make any difference. So most people don't pray like the future is settled. A lot of people pray believing that God could single-handedly fix whatever they're praying about, your grandma's cancer, perhaps. But apparently... God's sort of sitting on the sidelines, arms folded, like, okay, Paul, I ain't going to get off my butt unless you ask me to, unless you beg and plead, unless you put this on the prayer chain at church and you get 37 people begging and pleading, then maybe I'll get up and single-handedly fix this thing. Hmm. And that does not present a very positive picture of God. <laughs> um, can you imagine? Uh, uh, well, I'll go back to my daughters again. You know, imagine I'm out at the lake and one of them I see is out in the water and starting to drown, but she doesn't call out for help. You think I'm going to sit on the side and just watch her drown or I'm going to jump in even if she hasn't asked me to? Well, I'm going to jump in because <laughs> I love my daughter. But yeah. the way that most people think about God and prayer, it's as if God doesn't really love you enough to do something until you beg and plead. Mm. So I'm against that view. Now, usually what happens, people look at those first two views, they see they don't work, and then they move to a view that says, prayer doesn't change God, it only changes me. Right. Now, 
I think prayer can change us, can really affect us. But yeah. open and relational folks think that prayer can also make a difference to God. It's not going to change God's nature, but it can change the way God interacts in the world. And so the model of prayer that I want to propose, we'll call it the fourth model here, says this. God and creation move through time moment by moment. Our prayers affect God, ourselves, and all of creation. And what we do in one moment can open up new avenues, new possibilities for how God is going to respond in the next moment to work in whatever situation we're thinking about. Mm. Our prayers become like relational information that God takes in and uses. Now, they don't make it they don't make it the case that God can control any situation. So I'm not claiming that, you know, once you pray to God, then God all of a sudden can be this omnipotent, coercive individual who can just come in and single-handedly fix things. But they really do make a difference to God's activity in terms of the possibilities and things God might be able to do in the future because we've acted. Man, loving this conversation with Thomas J. Ord. Hope you are too. Let me interrupt for just a moment to let you know about something we have coming up. It's called Unconventional Conversations. Now, you may heard of, have heard about my mentorship of Deconstruction U. This is where we talk about the questions of deconstructing our faith and rethinking our spirituality. And every month we have free offerings of something called Unconventional Conversations on Sunday night where we allow groups to come in and have discussions about the topics of deconstruction. And our next one is coming up this Sunday night. So I hope you'll join us for it. It's called Unconventional Conversations. And we're going to be talking about what is the Bible and how can we view it as we get untethered to the idea of inerrancy. And I hope you'll join me for that. Now, back that's at pastor-paul.com. And let's go back to our discussion with Thomas J. Ord on the Post Evangelical Podcast. Part of what I like about that is it 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 puts some of the responsibility on us, right? It, it yes, it, uh, it's not just pray and if well, if God sends a hurricane on New Orleans, then that was God's will, and so be it. Yeah. Um, part of this is just a partnership with us in in humanity, and even I even see this in the verses where you know after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is saying if if you forgive sins they'll be forgiven. And if you don't, they won't. You know, it's like we have that power with each other as well. Yeah, totally agree. Again, this is a view of of God that I think fits the majority of Scripture. I'm not going to say all of Scripture, because my view of Scripture is, not, is that it's not a systematic theology that everything ties together nicely. But I think it fits the majority of Scripture that says not only God is acting, but we're acting and there's a symbiotic or relational kind of thing that goes on that makes things happen in the world. It's one of those where everybody, I get accused by people all the time, well, you're cherry picking the Bible. And I'm like, we all cherry picked the Bible. Yes, you know, Jesus as, cherry picked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as an example, the you know, God changing his mind for Moses and, and uh, you know, even in, even in the you know the sinner's prayer versus Jesus saying, "Hey, if you didn't visit the prisoner, 
in prison, I'm going to say depart from me. I never. So there's always these aspects of, yes, it's works and it's grace. And, yeah. these, and so, again, I think it just goes back to what you're saying here, that God's looking for relationship, God, however we want to interpret that, looking for relationship with humanity and, and we're walking in partnership together. I totally agree. And I think the majority of scripture points to that. But, you know, there are some passages in scripture that, well, some of them, at least as I read them, don't portray God as particularly loving. When God, uh, when the writers think that God wants them to bash babies' heads against the rocks, you know, I, when genocide. I was young. Yeah, genocide, Canaanite genocide. When I was younger, I tried to reconcile that by saying, well, God's love must be higher than our love or something like that. But now I just look at it and say, they just got God wrong. They've just misunderstood who God is. And I make that claim based on the preponderance of claims about God in Scripture, and especially the God revealed in Jesus, whose love seems to be pretty amazing. <laughs> Not a person, I think, would call me to bash babies' heads. So you see those as human beings sort of putting it on God for some bad human behavior? Yes, yep. Or the way they thought gods must act, given their time and place and you know, we see it happening today, don't we? I mean, a lot of Christians say God wants things that I think, oh my goodness, if God wants that, then I don't want to be in the God business. <laughs> what for your for this this version of theology that you have, kind of what is what are the difficulties you have to overcome in the Bible? Is that is that the most difficult or what are yeah, the things the you most. have to overcome? Yeah. Some people think the most difficult is the omnipotence thing. But that's actually not a problem. You know, the word omnipotence doesn't appear in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And even though God is called almighty in various places, um, I know of no passage in the entire Bible from the creation of the world to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the resurrection of Jesus to the eschatological fulfillment to miracles. No passage that I know of explicitly says God alone brought about some event and there was no creaturely cooperation. Most stories explicitly talk about both creatures and God. There are some that only mention God, but they don't exclude creaturely uh, involvement. And so I know of no passage in scripture that requires us to think God is controlling, but there are some that do paint God as unloving. And I think we just need to admit that. Yeah. And and again, we're all sort of choosing to to see God in a particular framework, and and the Bible's not always going to fit that. I see that. And, and interestingly, you you uh, you said sort of that traditional in your book that traditional view of God is like the uh, the controlling boyfriend in the sky, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of uh, analogies to the kind of individuals, uh, human individuals that we know are not healthy in their relationships and. Uh, I do think it's appropriate to draw upon our deep moral intuitions and how we think about life amongst humans and other animals and ask, um, if this is not loving for humans, then it shouldn't also be loving. We shouldn't think it's God's love either. Uh, so a controlling boyfriend is not a loving person. <laughs> <laughs> and goes to the issue of sin. So how do you see sin. I, I, I hear that a lot from people like, well, where do you put sin in all of this? Yeah. I think of sin as failing to respond appropriately to God's call to love. 
And we can do that um, in ways that uh, are manipulative. We can do that in just a wide variety of ways. Um, I think too many people have said sin should be defined as disobeying God or not following certain rules or whatever. And the problem with that is that, well, first of all, disobeying God, you have to ask the question, well, what God, what does God want you to do? And the answer I think there is to live a life of love. So if you say disobedience is just refusing to love like God calls and you and I can agree, but the rules thing, the problem with making sin all about following rules is that we can always imagine scenarios in which breaking a rule would actually be a loving thing to do. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we need to have, I think biblical writers actually give us good evidence to place love as the overarching scheme and then measure the appropriateness of any particular rule in the light of love. So then, and this is my, my Jewish friends sort of talk to me about this, how, God and and the Torah travel with them in community, they say, that that what the Torah may have meant back then isn't the same for today as God and the scripture travel with them. And, and so can you see that? Is that how you see God? And maybe particularly you're talking about an issue like homosexuality, perchance. We can argue over interpretations of the Bible, but but does maybe just does God come along with us in culture a little bit? Or how do you see that? Definitely. Yeah. I, I understand the desire people have to think that religions of any kind, but here we'll talk about Christianity, uh, that Christianity has this eternal essence that you have to buy into. You know, people who want to go back to the early church and get to that that core a set of doctrinal claims that are just going to be the same forever and ever. And maybe they'll quote a little Bible verse like Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. And yeah. but the truth of the, the matter is, if we really look at Christianity, we see real changes over time, at least changes in interpreting what those core things are. Um, you know, I want to claim that love is at the core of Christianity, but love is also important for other religious traditions, as much as Christians. So the question, I think, is how do we interpret what Christianity means in our world today? And that interpreting is going to have some, you know, uh, differences amongst interpreters, but it always has been that way. That's nothing new. Um, but I would want to claim, at least, that I want to make love my fundamental touchstone for the interpretation so that when we have questions like, you know, can lesbians be Christians? And I have no problem with that. Um, LGBTQ people can be faithful followers of Jesus. Got no problem with that. Um, but I admit that there are historical passages, especially in Christian history, but some in scripture as well that seem to suggest otherwise. Yeah. And, and uh, we see in scripture that, God was okay with Abraham t having a slave girl first off and then having sex with her and making her have his child. And I don't think any of us would say God would be in favor of that today. Right, right. And maybe so, God wasn't in favor of it then, but God used a situation God didn't want to bring about something good. I mean, that's a, another way to go about those things. But yeah. maybe an, another example would be... Um, uh, uh, well, circumcision, right? Like that was 
pretty clear if you read uh, the Hebrew scriptures, the circumcision is what the chosen people ought to do. God's favored. And yet in the early church, they make a decision that circumcision is not going to be required. Now, that's a pretty, to us, that might seem minor, but that day, that was a pretty radical change. Um, And I think they make that change motivated fundamentally by the call of love. Yeah, and and you're you're right. God may not have been in favor of Abraham doing that, and certainly not sending her and the baby off to die in the desert. Yeah, <laughs> um, but there's not a specific prohibition against it. And right, and and so um, again, I think we see this idea that that even even every Christian who is a say they're a scriptural literalist would still say, but that's not for today or. Or yeah. David having a virgin in his deathbed, you know, God wouldn't, we wouldn't allow yeah. David to be a pastor in one of our churches today. <laughs> no, no, no. That passage from Paul always comes to mind when I think about people who want a long set of rules of, you know, what's going to keep people in Christianity or kick them out. The line that Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Yeah. So the question is, what's going to be beneficial? And that's the question of love, as I see it. I, you know, I think that's really fascinating. And, you know, I, I love the story of Peter and the and the sheets with the animals. And 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 basically I, what I see happening there is Jesus saying to Peter, I know what your interpretation of Scripture is, but I want you to go hang out with the Romans because they're important to to heaven. And, and so you are being commanded today to violate Scripture for your sovereign Lord, right? And 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 is, is is that still able to happen today? Could God say to us, violate scripture to love people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what happened in at least the West when Christians finally decided this slavery thing, even though it can you can find some endorsement of it in scripture, or at least tacit endorsement, they said, you know, it just doesn't, isn't the loving thing to do. Um, the subjugation of women. You can find some support for that in Scripture. But people said, look, that God seems to be calling us to treat women equally. Um, and I could go on. Um, so, yeah, there's there's real changes that occur. So to all you Bible literalists, <laughs> note that even you have made accommodations, uh, literalists, for, for God in the Bible. And, and it... Uh, and and so it can it can continue to happen. And I think I, you know the way I ultimately interpret that, and particularly around the homosexuality issue, which is such a big issue, or the trans issues of today, is just how did Jesus treat people who were marginalized by religion? And I think that's a pretty good example of how we should probably yeah. treat them today. Nicely done. Yeah. yeah, he's got some really interesting things to say about eunuchs who were made so by. Man's choice is how, or as the King James would put it, our human choice and eunuchs are such by birth, which hints at something about uh, a genderless identity. Um, That doesn't address all LGBTQ issues, but I think it pushes us to remember that that, uh, binary thinking about sexuality is not just a a, 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 is not a, just a, a new thing. It's people have been thinking about non-binary issues for a long time. And I always like to say to people, yeah, of if Jesus did mention homosexuality, that verse I think is not paid enough attention to. And 
that he told the religious city of Capernaum, Sodom's going to have a better judgment day than you. So if, if, <laughs> yeah. if Jesus made any mention of homosexuality at all, those are the only two I see, and they seem to be fairly pro-loving of the same-sex people. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to this discussion. We have more coming up with Thomas J. Ord. We have a part two of this podcast coming up where uh, Dr. Ord will talk to us about how sometimes rejecting your belief in God can actually bring you closer to God, and he'll explain that to us in our next podcast. If you're a subscriber of the Pastor Paul community at pastor-paul.com, you can go hear that podcast right now. If you're not a subscriber, it'll be coming out in two weeks, and I hope you'll hear that at all your major podcast outlets and on my unconventional Pastor Paul YouTube channel. And go check out my website, pastor-paul.com. Subscribe, jump into some of my coaching and mentorship projects so I can help you walk a more fulfilling and sustainable emotional well-being. And also you can help me continue to share this ministry with the world. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. And remember, God is not mad at you.